0: section thirty of mark twain's autobiography this librivox recording is in the public domain read by john greenman new york january twelfth nineteen o six my seventieth birthday arrived recently that is to say it arrived on the thirtieth of november but colonel harvey note colonel george harvey at the time president of harper and brothers later American ambassador to the court of St. James, was not able to celebrate it on that date, because that date had been preempted by the President to be used as the usual and perfunctory Thanksgiving Day, a function which originated in New England two or three centuries ago, when those people recognized that they really had something to be thankful for, annually, not oftener if they had succeeded in exterminating their neighbors the indians during the previous twelve months instead of getting exterminated by their neighbors the indians thanksgiving day became a habit for the reason that in the course of time as the years drifted on it was perceived that the exterminating had ceased to be mutual and was all on the white man's side consequently on the lord's side hence it was proper to thank the lord for it and extend the usual annual compliments the original reason for a thanksgiving day has long ago ceased to exist the indians have long ago been comprehensively and satisfactorily exterminated and the account closed with the lord with the thanks due but from old habit thanksgiving day has remained with us and every year the president of the united states and the governors of all the several states and territories set themselves the task every november to hunt up something to be thankful for and then they put those thanks into a few crisp and reverent phrases in the form of a proclamation and this is read from all the pulpits in the land the national conscience is wiped clean with one swipe and sin is resumed at the old stand the president and the governors had to have my birthday the thirtieth for thanksgiving day and this was a great inconvenience to colonel harvey who had made much preparation for a banquet to be given to me on that day in celebration of the fact that it marked my 70th escape from the gallows according to his idea a fact which he regarded with favor and contemplated with pleasure because he is my publisher and commercially interested he went to washington to try to get the president to select another day for the national thanksgiving and i furnished him with arguments to use which i thought persuasive and convincing arguments which ought to persuade him even to put off thanksgiving a whole year on the ground that nothing had happened during the previous twelve months except several vicious and inexcusable wars and king leopold of belgium's usual annual slaughters and robberies in the congo state together with the insurance revelations in new york which seemed to establish the fact that if there was an honest man left in the united states there was only one and we wanted to celebrate his seventieth birthday but the colonel came back unsuccessful and put my birthday celebration off to the 5th of December. In the birthday speech which I made were concealed many facts. I expected everybody to discount those facts 95%, and that is probably what happened. That does not trouble me. I am used to having my statements discounted. My mother had begun it before I was seven years old. But all through my life my facts have had a substratum of truth, and therefore they were not without value. Any person who is familiar with me knows how to strike my average, and therefore knows how to get at the jewel of any fact of mine and dig it out of its blue-clay matrix. My mother knew that art. When I was seven or eight or ten or twelve years old along there a neighbor said to her do you ever believe anything that that boy says my mother said he is the wellspring of truth but you can't bring up the whole well with one bucket and she added i know his average therefore he never deceives me i discount him ninety percent for embroidery and what is left is perfect and priceless truth without a flaw in it anywhere now to make a jump of forty years without breaking the connection one of those words was used again in my presence and concerning me when i was fifty years old one night at reverend frank goodwin's house in hartford at a meeting of the monday evening club the monday evening club still exists it was founded about forty-five years ago by that theological giant rev dr bushnell and some comrades of his men of large intellectual caliber and more or less distinction local or national i was admitted to membership in it in the fall of eighteen seventy one and was an active member thenceforth until I left Hartford in the summer of 1891. The membership was restricted in those days to 18, possibly 20. The meetings began about the 1st of October, and were held in the private houses of the members every fortnight thereafter throughout the cold months until the 1st of May usually there were a dozen members present sometimes as many as fifteen there were an essay and a discussion the essayists followed one another in alphabetical order through the season the essayist could choose his own subject and talk twenty minutes on it from manuscript or orally according to his preference then the discussion followed and each member present was allowed ten minutes in which to express his views the wives of these people were always present it was their privilege it was also their privilege to keep still they were not allowed to throw any light upon the discussion after the discussion there was a supper and talk and cigars this supper began at ten o'clock promptly and the company broke up and went away at midnight at least they did except upon one occasion in my birthday speech i have remarked upon the fact that i have always bought cheap cigars and that is true i have never smoked costly ones and whenever i go to a rich man's house to dinner i conceal cheap cigars about my person as a protection against his costly ones there are enough costly havana cigars in my house to start a considerable cigar shop with but i did not buy one of them i doubt if i have ever smoked one of them they are christmas presents from wealthy and ignorant friends extending back for a long series of years among the lot i found the other day a double handful of j pierpoint morgan's cigars which were given to me three years ago by his particular friend the late william e dodge one night when i was at dinner in mr dodge's house mr dodge did not smoke and so he supposed that those were super-excellent cigars, because they were made for Mr. Morgan in Havana out of special tobacco and cost one dollar and sixty-six cents apiece. Now, whenever I buy a cigar that costs six cents, I am suspicious of it. When it costs four and a quarter or five cents, I smoke it with confidence. I carried those sumptuous cigars home, after smoking one of them at Mr. Dodge's house, to show that I had no animosity, and here they lie ever since. They cannot beguile me. I am waiting for somebody to come along whose lack of education will enable him to smoke them and enjoy them. Well. That night at the club, as I was saying, George, our uh, colored butler, came to me when the supper was nearly over, and I noticed that he was pale. Normally his complexion was a clear black and very handsome, but now it had modified to old amber. He said, Mr. Clemens, what are you going to do? there is not a cigar in the house but those old wheeling long nines can't nobody smoke them but you they kill at thirty yards it is too late to telephone we couldn't get any cigars out from town what can we do ain't it best to say nothing and let on that we didn't think no i said that would not be honest fetch out the long nines which he did i had just come across those long nines a few days or a week before i hadn't seen a long nine for years when i was a cub pilot on the mississippi in the late sixties i had had a great affection for them because they were not only to my mind perfect but you could get a basket full of them for a cent or a dime they didn't use cents out there in those days so when i saw them advertised in hartford i sent for a thousand at once they were sent out to me in badly battered and disreputable looking old square pasteboard boxes about two hundred in a box George brought the box which had caved in on all sides looking the worst it could and began to pass them around the conversation had been brilliantly animated up to that moment but now a frost fell upon the company that is to say not all of a sudden but the frost fell upon each man as he took up a cigar and held it poised in the air and there In the middle, his sentence broke off, and that kind of thing went all around the table until, when George had completed his crime, the whole place was full of a thick solemnity and silence. Those men began to light the cigars. Reverend Dr. Parker was the first man to light. He took three or four heroic whiffs and gave it up. He got up with the excuse that he had to go to the bedside of a dying parishioner, which I knew was a lie, because if that had been the truth he would have gone earlier. He started out. Rev. Dr. Burton was the next man. He took only one whiff and followed Parker. He furnished a pretext, and you could see by the sound of his voice that He didn't think much of the pretext, and was vexed with Parker for getting in ahead with a dying client. Rev. Joe Twitchell followed with a good hearty pretext, nothing in it, and he didn't expect anybody to find anything in it. But Twitchell is always more or less honest to this day, and it cost him nothing to say that... He had to go now because he must take the midnight train for Boston. Boston was the first place that occurred to him. He would have said Jerusalem if he had thought of it. It was only a quarter to eleven when they began to hand out pretexts. At five minutes to eleven all those people were out of the house and praying, no doubt, that the pretext might be overlooked, in consideration of the circumstances. When nobody was left but George and me, I was cheerful, I was glad, had no compunctions of conscience, no griefs of any kind. But George was beyond speech, because he held the honor and credit of the family above his own and he was ashamed that this smirch had been put upon it. I told him to go to bed and try to sleep it off. I went to bed myself. At breakfast in the morning, when George was taking a cup of coffee from Mrs. Clemens' hand, I saw it tremble in his hand. I knew by that sign there was something on his mind. He brought the cup to me and asked impressively, "Mist. Clemens, how far is it from the front door to the upper gate? I said, It is one hundred and twenty-five steps. He said, Mr. Clemens, you know you can start at the front door, and you can go plumb to the upper gate and tread on one of them cigars every time. Now. By this roundabout and gradual excursion I have arrived at that meeting of the club at Reverend Frank Goodwin's house, which I spoke of a while back, and where that same word was used in my presence, and to me which I mentioned as having been used by my mother as much as forty years before, the subject under discussion was dreams the talk passed from mouth to mouth in the usual serene way the late charles dudley warner delivered his views in the smooth and pleasantly flowing fashion which he had learned in his early manhood when he was an apprentice to the legal profession he always spoke pleasingly always smoothly always choicely never excitedly never aggressively always kindly gently and always with a lambent and playful and inconspicuous thread of humor appearing and disappearing along through his talk like the tinted lights in an opal to my thinking there was never much body to what he said never much juice in it never anything very substantial to carry away and think about Yet it was always a pleasure to listen to him. Always his art was graceful and charming. Then came the late Colonel Green, who had been a distinguished soldier in the Civil War, and who, at the time that I speak of, was high up in the Connecticut Mutual, and on his way to become its president presently and in time to die in that harness and leave behind him a blemishless reputation at a time when the chiefs of the new york insurance companies were approaching the eternal doom of their reputations colonel green discussed the dream question in his usual way that is to say he began a sentence and went on and on dropping a comma in here and there at intervals of eighteen inches never hesitating for a word drifting straight along like a river at half bank with no reefs in it the surface of his talk as smooth as a mirror his construction perfect and fit for print without correction as he went along and when the hammer fell at the end of his ten minutes he dumped in a period right where he was And stopped and it was just as good there as it would have been anywhere else in that ten-minute sentence you could look back over that speech and you'd find it dimly milestoned along with those commas which he had put in and which could have been left out just as well because they merely staked out the march and nothing more they could not call attention to the scenery because there wasn't any. His speech was always like that, perfectly smooth, perfectly constructed, and when he had finished no listener could go into court and tell what it was he had said. It was a curious style. It was impressive. You always thought, from one comma to another, that he was going to strike something presently, but he never did but this time that i speak of the burly and magnificent reverend dr burton sat with his eyes fixed upon green from the beginning of the sentence until the end of it he looked as the lookout on a whale ship might look who was watching where a whale had gone down and was waiting and watching for it to reappear and no doubt that was the figure that was in burton's mind because When at last Green finished, Burton threw up his hands and shouted, "'There she blows!' The elder Hammersley took his appointed ten minutes easily, comfortably, with good phrasing, and most entertainingly, and this was always to be expected of the elder Hammersley. Then his son Will Hammersley, a young lawyer, now this many years a judge of the Connecticut Supreme Court took his chance in the dream question, and I can't imagine anything more distressing than a talk from Will Hammersley, a talk from the Will Hammersley of those days. You always knew that before he got through he would certainly say something, something that you could carry away, something that you could consider something that you couldn't easily put out of your mind but you always knew that you would suffer many a torture before he got that thing out he would hesitate and hesitate get to the middle of a sentence and search around and around and around for a word get the wrong word search again get another wrong one search again and again and so he would go on in that way till everybody was in misery on his account hoping that he would arrive in the course of time and yet sinking deeper and deeper toward despair with the conviction that this time he was not going to arrive he would seem to get so far away from any possible goal that you would feel convinced that he could not cover the intervening space and get there before his ten minutes would come to an end and leave him suspended between heaven and earth. But, sure as a gun, before that ten minutes ended, Will Hammersley would arrive at his point and fetch it out with such a round and complete and handsome and satisfying, unostentatious crash, that you would be lifted out of your chair with admiration and gratitude. Joe Twitchell sometimes took his turn. If he talked, it was easily perceptible that it was because he had something to say, and he was always able to say it well. But almost as a rule, he said nothing and gave his ten minutes to the next man, and whenever he gave it to blank, he ran the risk of getting lynched on his way home by the rest of the membership. Blank was the dullest white man in Connecticut, and he probably remains that to this day. I have not heard of any real competitor. Blank would moon along and moon along and moon along using the most commonplace the most dreary the most degraded english with never an idea in it by any chance but he never gave his ten minutes to anybody he always used it up to the last second then there was always a little gap had to be for the crowd to recover before the next man could begin. Blank, when he would get entirely lost in his talk and didn't know where he was in his idiotic philosophizings, would grasp at narrative as the drowning man grasps at a straw. If a drowning man ever does that, which I doubt, Then he would tell something in his experiences, thinking perhaps it had something to do with the question in hand. It generally hadn't, and this time he told about a long and arduous and fatiguing chase which he had had in the Maine woods on a hot summer's day after some kind of a wild animal that he wanted to kill, and how, at last, chasing eagerly after this creature across a wide stream, he slipped and fell on the ice and injured his leg, whereupon a silence and confusion. Blank noticed that something was wrong, and then it occurred to him that there was a kind of discrepancy in hunting animals on the ice in summertime, so he switched off to theology. He always did that. He was a rabid Christian and member of Joe Twitchell's church. Joe Twitchell could get together the most impossible Christians that ever assembled in anybody's congregation and as a usual thing he couldn't run his church systematically on account of new deacons who didn't understand the business the recent deacons having joined their predecessors in the penitentiary down there at Weathersfield, would wind up with some very pious remarks and in fact they all did that take the whole crowd the crowd that was almost always present, and this remark applies to them. There was J. Hammond Trumbull, the most learned man in the United States. He knew everything, everything in detail that had ever happened in this world, and a lot that was going to happen, and a lot that couldn't ever possibly happen. He would close with some piety henry c robinson governor henry c robinson a brilliant man a most polished and effective and eloquent speaker an easy speaker a speaker who had no difficulties to encounter in delivering himself always closed with some piety a c dunham a man really great in his line that is to say the commercial line A great manufacturer, an enterprising man, a capitalist, a most competent and fascinating talker, a man who never opened his mouth without a stream of practical pearls flowing from it. He always closed with some piety. End of section 30. New York, January twelfth, nineteen 1906.